Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Radio Westeros, episode 52. In conjunction with History of Westeros, The Dance of the Dragons, part two. Spoilers all Last time we told you all about the politics and bickering and intrigue and jockeying for position. This time we have to use stronger language. Politics gives way to survival, bickering becomes fighting, and intrigue makes the leap to assassination. When dragons rule the skies, even House Tully can no longer boast of upholding family, duty, and honour. The latter two must be sacrificed for the sake of the first. But even the hallowed virtue of family loyalty is thrown off as the dancing of the dragons becomes ever more frenzied. The Lord of Riverrun and his heir disagreed over which side to take, and such disagreements were not uncommon. After all, this whole dance is a family dispute in the first place. When the first families fight, or dance, as the songs tell us, the rest of the realm dances along, family or no. The words of House Tully don't ring so loudly at this time, no one can hear them over the music of the Dance of the Dragons. But the words of House Targaryen, on the other hand, those have rarely been so fitting. The principles of family, honour and duty may have been in short supply, but there was plenty of fire and blood to go around. Hello and welcome to The Dance of the Dragons Part 2. And yes, that was Yoke Boy. Welcome back to Yoke Boy. Credit to him and Ashea for producing. And this is the first time the four of us have worked together since Season 7. We have done a lot of Game of Thrones coverage together, but... This is the first time, like I said, all four of us have been able to work together at the same time since, well, I guess that would be 2017. It's great to be working together again. And before we go on, History of Westeros and Radio Westeros are both powered by patrons. And so throughout this episode, we'll be thanking each other's patrons. And so we begin now by saying thanks to the History of Westeros first sword, 
Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, and History of Westeros Dragon Rider, Telenis the Talon, King of Gagossos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. And Flaming Lightbringer patron T.J. Harrington, Dragonsteel patron Peter, Pale as Milk Glass patrons John Wergarian, Sister Winter, Laura, Kelly, Whitney, Pepper, Maltude, and Daniel. The Anarchy. In our first episode, we talked about some of the real-world events from English history that influenced the background of the Dance of the Dragons, namely the lesser-known origins of the well-known Wars of the Roses. But with the death of Viserys I and the power struggle that would ensue for his throne, we can now turn our eyes to another real-life influence from another era of English history. In the early 12th century, a younger son of William the Conqueror ruled England after seizing power when his brother died. Henry I reigned for 35 years. His politically savvy marriage to Matilda of Scotland represented a union of the conquering Norman dynasty, his, with a descendant of the conquered yet ancient Anglo-Saxon House of Wessex. This union resulted in only two children, a son and a daughter, though it was commonly known that Henry had also fathered numerous bastard children, by some accounts as many as two dozen. Now, keeping the focus on his legitimate children, some five years before Henry's death, his son William was killed in a shipwreck that was basically the medieval version of a drunk driving accident. And the death of his only legitimate son left Henry in a quandary. Either name his nephew, Stephen, who's the son of his sister, or choose one of several other nephews or his many illegitimate sons as his heir. Or proclaim his daughter and sole surviving legitimate child, another Matilda, who was also the Dowager Holy Roman Empress, as the future queen. Now, Henry ultimately chose his daughter, who was promptly remarried to Geoffrey Plantagenet, who was a powerful French nobleman and the brother-in-law of her recently deceased brother. Up until now, except for the naming of the daughter as the heir, the situation is really somewhat different from that of Viserys I, Rhaenyra, and Aegon, because unlike that of Aegon the Elder, Matilda's rival claimant, Stephen's claim, was derived through a female line. So rather than being strictly about primogeniture, what was at issue was the baron's willingness, or not, to follow a female leader, and to some extent, their political objections to her husband, Geoffrey of Anjou. But once Matilda was chosen, the similarities with the Targaryen succession crisis we see in the dance really begin to grow. Recognizing that his barons would be reluctant to support a female heir, Henry took steps to ensure that his wishes would be followed, including, as was the case with Viserys I, requiring them to make oaths of recognition, upholding Matilda's rights, and the rights of her children to inherit after her. Henry had his barons swear these oaths on three separate occasions, and on one of those occasions, her cousin Stephen of Blois was one of those who took the oath. Though, as was the case with Viserys and Rhaenyra, relations between Henry and his daughter eventually became strained. There's little credible evidence that he changed his mind about the succession, and the repeated pressure for oaths, which may have coincided with the births of Matilda's first two sons, support this. However, at the time of Henry's death in 1135, both he and his chosen heir were abroad in Normandy, embroiled in a power dispute in which they were on opposite sides. 
Matilda, pregnant with her third son and in the middle of a military engagement, was not immediately free to return to England to press her claim. And that was the critical lapse that Stephen of Blois and his supporters needed. As would be the case with Rhaenyra and Aegon, Stephen took advantage of his rival's enforced absence and with the backing of powerful church leaders was able to seize control and begin to solidify his power. Matilda, now with three legitimate sons whose rights, in her opinion, the barons of England had repeatedly sworn to support, began to plan for war. As with any civil war, as we see in the Dance of the Dragons, hostilities between two rival claimants for power leads to the actual management of the country becoming a bit of an afterthought. Because of the distraction of the nobility, life would become very hard indeed for common people. This war, which ultimately dragged on for nearly 20 years, would come to be known as the Anarchy, a period where there was a systemic breakdown of law and order caused by the succession crisis following Henry's death. During this long period, power would swing back and forth, with Matilda at one time capturing her cousin Stephen and seizing the city of London. However, much like Rhaenyra's brief ascendancy in King's Landing, hostile crowds would soon force her to retreat, and before long, Stephen would be reinstated after he was released from captivity in exchange for the Empress's half-brother and military commander, Robert Fitzroy. Ultimately, the drawn-out hostilities would come down to a meeting between Matilda's now-grown son Henry and Stephen, wherein a complicated peace would be forged, though the question of succession was not yet settled. Stephen's grown son Eustace would no doubt have pressed his own claim had he not died suddenly, removing the most powerful and vocal claimant of Stephen's line. Passing over Stephen's younger son, the peaceful solution then became naming Henry Plantagenet as his successor. Henry, also known as Henry Fitz Empress, would rule as Henry II and be known to history as the husband of Eleanor of Aquitaine and the father of Richard the Lionheart and King John, all giants of high medieval legend and the subjects of many books and movies known to history lovers. Later in life, his parallels with the boy who would become Aegon III would end. But at this stage, it's quite easy to see just how much inspiration George took from this chaotic and complicated period of English history. Opening Moves We must fight this war with words before we go to battle. The Black Faction didn't lack for determination, but as things stood at the outset, they were clearly the weaker faction. They had fewer allies, meaning less political, military, and financial backing. They'd also lost the initiative, as Aegon II was already crowned and in possession of King's Landing, in addition to several symbols of rule, such as the crown of Aegon the Conqueror and his sword Blackfire. But the Greens' strength was not so overwhelming that they could simply squash the Blacks and be done with it. Not only is Dragonstone Castle itself formidable, but it sits on an island, one that's near impossible to invade, with the Valerian fleet, the most powerful in Westeros, defending it and the surrounding area. And of course, there was the matter of dragons. The Greens had far fewer dragons, but they also had the largest of them all, Vagar. 
For these reasons, the Greens initially expected capitulation. They saw their advantages overwhelming and expected that Rainier and her council would come to the same conclusion, i.e. that their cause was hopeless. This was a grave misreading of the situation. Yes, it looked bad for the blacks, but they had enough to build on, and more importantly, Rainier was simply not the type to give up. One of my favorite ways to describe Rainier is Cersei with dragons, or maybe Daenerys with human children. To be sure, it's not that simple, but for a quick and dirty summary, it fits pretty well. Can you imagine Cersei with dragons bending the knee without a fight? <laughs> Can you imagine Danny giving up her children as hostages? We might guess that neither Cersei nor Danny would bend the knee no matter what. After all, it was Cersei who said, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Not you win or you bend the knee. Rhaenyra seemed quite intent on living up to that quote. At least one member of the Green Council, Grandmaster Orwell, predicted war, but apparently few enough agreed with him. Black goes second. This is generally true in chess, and chess makes a good metaphor here as both sides were moving their pieces while reacting to each other's, and in some cases, thinking ahead several moves. The excellent defenses of Dragonstone, combined with the Greens' inaction, gave the Blacks time. They used that time to find allies, to plan, and to match the Greens' optics by crowning Rhaenyra. The first plan suggested was simple enough and is another reminder of Daenerys. Celtigar urged the princess to fly against King's Landing at once and reduce the city to ash and bone. And how will that serve us, my lord? The sea snake demanded of him. We want to rule the city, not burn it to the ground. I would actually guess Rhaenyra might prefer to see it burn than let someone else rule it, but even if so, that would be a last resort and the war had barely begun. They were at a disadvantage, not desperate. To be fair, Aegon II was not terribly high-minded about, well, much of anything, really. He reminds us a lot of Joffrey, after all, so I guess he'd not care much if King's Landing burned upon his death, either. A notion that reminds us that while one side might have the better claim, neither has the high moral ground with any sort of consistency. Celtigar argued that their advantage in dragons was crucial and should be capitalized on. It's a decent point that if you take the capital, you might win the war in a stroke, especially if you capture the Greens' royal family. But Celtigar misunderstood the situation with regard to the dragons. In the Stepstones, my enemies learned to run and hide when they saw Caraxes' wings or heard his roar. But they had no dragons of their own. It is no easy thing for a man to be a dragon slayer, but dragons can kill dragons, and have. Any maester who ever studied the history of Valyria can tell you that. I will not throw our dragons against the usurpers unless I have no other choice. There are other ways to use them, better ways. This is very true, and events later in the war will provide ample evidence of it. Usually when two dragons come together in battle, neither comes out of it very well, assuming they're of a similar size. But even a smaller dragon can do serious and permanent damage to a foe that significantly outsizes them. 
Their tough scales can be nearly impenetrable to human weapons, but don't go thinking that applies to dragon talons or teeth. Upon reflection, this seems fairly intuitive. Their wings are vulnerable, and so are their extremely long necks, their eyes, even their bellies, all those soft parts. So not only did he argue against Celtigar's plan, Damon had come prepared with plans of his own, plans that were accepted by Rhaenyra and the council. Step one was the coronation. It was important for her to be a queen and not a princess to stand in open and direct opposition to her usurping brother, especially because step two was going to be about asking for support and asking people to support the king's daughter or the princess doesn't quite pack the punch of asking people to support the lawful queen. Kingsguard Knight Sir Stefan Darklin, the house with the most all-time Kingsguard Knights, by the way, defected from Aegon II, along with a few others, notably a royal steward who took the crown of Viserys from the Red Keep and brought it to Dragonstone. This crown, first worn by Jaehaerys himself, was placed on Rhaenyra's head by Prince Daemon. This no doubt bothered some people, probably the faithful most of all, as it is widely believed that the High Septon should be the one to do so as kings are meant to be ordained by the gods. For a man as disreputable as Prince Damon to do it was surely an insult to many, though to be fair, the deeply devout are taught to be against the notion of a ruling queen anyway, so for some, the decision was already made. And to be fair, Aegon II was not crowned by the High Septon either. He was anointed by Septon Eustace because the current High Septon was too frail to make the journey. Or perhaps he used that as an excuse, not wanting to get in the middle of it all, right? So the crowning itself was done by Sir Kristen Cole, appropriate, given his nickname, the Kingmaker. Along with the coronation of Rhaenyra, Daemon was named Protector of the Realm, and Prince Jacaris was named Prince of Dragonstone. After these, titles were bestowed. Her first act as queen was to declare Sir Otto Hightower and Queen Alicent traitors and rebels, As for my half-brothers and my sweet sister Helena, she announced, they have been led astray by the council of evil men. Let them come to Dragonstone, bend the knee, and ask my forgiveness, and I shall gladly spare their lives and take them back into my heart, for they are my own blood, and no man or woman is as accursed as the Kinslayer. Though tens of thousands witnessed the crowning of Aegon II, only about 300 bore witness to the crowning of Rhaenyra, but the blacks were undeterred. With these declarations made, they moved on to step two, the aforementioned, asking for support. Many lords and ladies had pledged to support Rhaenyra as the king's heir back in 105 AC, and the Black Council expected many of them to uphold that oath. However, a lot of others who had taken the oath had since died, after all it had been 24 years. The descendants of those who made the pledge were not always feeling particularly bound by it, and many perhaps found themselves unsure what to do. Thus, letters were written and dispatched from Dragonstone to every corner of the realm. And if this moment reminds you of Stannis sending his letters declaring his nephews bastards, well, that's intentional on George's part. History repeats itself, and George loves to play with that concept. Though, of course, technically speaking, this comes before Stannis on the fictional timeline. But also technically speaking, 
Stannis was written first in the real-life timeline. So remember the quote we heard where Rhaenyra called Aegon and Aemond her half-brothers. She was most likely reminding the realm in her letter that she was Targaryen on both sides while her usurper brother was not. This reminds us, too, of the Blackfyre rebellions, but in reverse, as there the Blacks were the usurpers, but Damon Blackfyre was Targaryen on both sides, too, and he capitalized on that and sought to unseat his half-brother, Daron the Good, whose heirs were all half-Dornish. As these letters flew, word reached the Greens of Rhaenyra's coronation and subsequent declaration. It likely didn't take long. Here's a good place to remind everyone that Dragonstone is not very far from King's Landing, though, of course, separated by Blackwater Bay. Though the name Blackwater has nothing to do with the Black Faction, they could certainly claim it was the Black's Water. (laughs) The Valerian fleet controlled the area, and thus ships coming and going to Dragonstone and Driftmark would be spreading the news quickly to all the nearby ports, and then on from there to the rest of the world. This would surely be encouraged by Rhaenyra and her people, as they obviously wanted everyone in the realm to know of her intention to contest her half-brother's usurpation, of which news had already spread. Timing is very important in the War of Words, and the Greens had gotten the advantage of initiative on that account. Aegon II immediately declared his sister and Prince Daemon to be traitors, but there was still some hope at the time for a peaceable solution. Grand Maester Orwell argued that they make one last attempt to avoid bloodshed and offered to take the case to Rhaenyra in person. Perhaps she would see reason and lay down her claim. Thus, Orwell was dispatched, along with Septon Eustace and a few others, to Dragonstone under a peace banner. He was given the authority to grant them full pardons if they bent the knee and surrendered hostages. Orwell planned on trying to make them see reason, i.e. that their cause was hopeless, and that he was wrong. For one, their cause, as we well know, was not hopeless at all, and the Greens had badly overestimated their position. So predictably enough, these terms were not remotely acceptable to Rhaenyra, Rather than arguing pragmatism as Orwell did, she cited King Viserys, her father himself. She asked Orwell a pointed question. Perhaps you can tell us who he has named as his heir and successor, the queen said, her crown upon her head. You, your grace, Orwell replied. And Rhaenyra nodded and said, With your own tongue you admit that I am your lawful queen. Why, then, do you serve my half-brother, the Pretender? Two accounts are given. One states that Orwell argued eloquently. Mushroom says he pissed himself and was too frightened to argue much at all. Though we often side with Mushroom, uh, we tend to believe Orwell himself here. The sources seem to agree that he had begged leave to go on this mission, and only a fool would expect Rhaenyra to be meek and not to argue her case by mentioning her father's will. Would Orwell truly be so afraid of her reaction when her reaction was so predictable? No king or queen aiming to be seen as legitimate would kill or harm an envoy. I mean, that's unthinkable and a violation of guest right in most cases, and Orwell would know this as well. On the other hand, Rhaenyra can be awfully intimidating. She did let them depart unharmed, though, but she found a punishment for Orwell that was within the rules, shall we say? A grand maester should know the law and serve it, she told Orwell. You are no grand maester, and you bring only shame and dishonor to that chain you wear. 
Rhaenyra took Orwile's chain of office and gave it to her maester, Gerardis. Then she sent Orwile and the rest of his party back to King's Landing with the message that Rhaenyra would have her brother's head. With that, though there was no fighting just yet, both sides knew it would be soon, and so the gathering of allies began. Ravens and letters would suffice for most of the lords and ladies and knights of the realm, but the most important potential allies required personal visits, and the young princes were eager to be amongst them. Though Rhaenyra was hesitant to send them, the young men had strong arguments on their side. The best of these reasons may have been the notion of putting the rumors of their parentage to rest. Then upspoke the queen's eldest son, Jaceres. We should bear those messages, he said. Dragons will win the lords over quicker than ravens. His brother, Lucerys, agreed, insisting that he and Jace were men, or near enough to make no matter. Our uncle calls us strongs and claims that we are bastards. But when the lords see us on Dragonback, they will know that for a lie. Only Targaryens ride dragons. Now, Rhaenyra had to concede that this was a great point, and we'd have to agree. But she didn't concede easily, first demanding concessions for their safety before signing off on the plan. Joffrey, the youngest, would not be going at all, while Lucerys and Jaceris were made to pledge by the Seven that for the duration of this mission, they were envoys, not knights. This caution was not unwise given the somewhat hot-headed nature of her sons and the uncertain welcomes they might receive. Despite those uncertainties, they did have expectations for certain houses. They expected to win the Vale, as that was led by a woman. They expected to win the North as well. They didn't have the religious concerns held by many in the South. However, the Blacks were concerned that the war would be over quickly and that the North would be unable to help in time. They also expected to win Storm's End, as the Baratheons had much closer family ties to them than they did with the Greens. Several of their expectations were flawed, and only a few of them actually came to pass, not unlike the Greens' expectations that the Blacks would submit given their perceived overwhelming disadvantage. Prince Damon suggested something a bit similar to what Lord Tywin thought of Rob, i.e. that a green boy like Aegon II could be provoked into a rash attack. Lord Tywin turned out to be wrong, and it was his son Jaime that was provoked into a rash attack instead, as predicted by the Blackfish. Damon would be more like Blackfish than Tywin in this, and fittingly headed towards the same general area where these A Song of Ice and Fire battles occurred while other parts of the plan were enacted simultaneously. Even as he spoke, the dance began. On Driftmark, the sea snake's ships set sail from Hull and Spicetown to close the gullet, choking off trade to and from King's Landing. Soon after, Jaceres Valerian was flying north upon his dragon Vermax, his brother Lucerys south on Arax, whilst Prince Daemon rode Caraxes to the Trident. That's the Riverlands for you, always in the middle of things. And the chess metaphors will continue. Interlude, Dragons. We have more, said Princess Rhaenys, the queen who never was, who had been a dragon rider longer than all of them. And ours are larger and stronger, but for Vega. 
Dragons thrive best here on Dragonstone. Before we go on, we really shouldn't talk about the Dance of the Dragons without taking a close look at the actual dragons. While the name used to describe the conflict can be said to refer to metaphorical dragons, that is, Targaryens, the issue of who had which dragons would shortly roar to the forefront of the conflict. In our first installment, we discussed who had dragons, dragon hatchlings, dragon eggs, and the perceived advantage of the Blacks in sheer number of dragons, and Rhaenyra and Daemon's initial reluctance to capitalize on that advantage. But so far in this episode, we've recapped the reasons for that decision, namely that numerical advantage doesn't necessarily equate to an overwhelming tactical advantage, nor is fighting with dragons without risk. As Damon pointed out, it's all well and good when your opponent has zero dragons, but when they have some dragons, one has to weigh the risk not only to the dragons themselves, but to their riders. And Rhaenyra flatly refused to allow her sons to enter the fray as combatants on Dragonback. Ultimately, though, the dragons would be huge players, literally and figuratively speaking. As the medieval fantasy equivalent to a nuclear warhead, their deployment by either side would be a huge force multiplier. As the hostilities progress to open war, decisions about dragons and when to use them would become increasingly significant. In that light, it might be helpful to back up a bit and have a brief rundown of the living dragons at the outset of the dance. When the Black Council met on Dragonstone and discussed the use of dragons, they counted eight dragon riders on their side, plus three riderless and three wild dragons who made their homes on Dragonstone. In addition, Dragonstone housed a trove of eggs, including two that Prince Viserys and his half-sister Reyna prayed would soon hatch. Should those eggs hatch, the Blacks would have ten dragon riders plus six riderless dragons at their command. The eight dragons who had riders included some fearsome beasts. Damon's Caraxes, a huge red dragon known as the Bloodworm, had once been the mount of his uncle Aemon, Prince of Dragonstone, the old king's son and heir who was killed tragically at Tarth as he helped to root out the pirates who had taken up residence there during the Mirish bloodbath. Caraxes was no stranger to war, as both of her riders had taken her into battle. About half the size of, and a century younger than Vagar, Caraxes was nonetheless terrifying and was the Black's largest dragon. Prince Aemon's daughter, and the mother of Lena and Laenor Valerian, Princess Rhaenys rode Maelys, the Red Queen. Another red dragon, probably of an age with Caraxes, Maelys had once been ridden by Rhaenys' aunt Alyssa, the mother of both Daemon and Viserys I. Rhaenys herself was a fearless dragon rider who had pressed her own and her children's claims to the Iron Throne following her uncle's and father's deaths. Having been rejected on account of her sex, she was in a better position than anyone else to relate to her former daughter-in-law's position. Rhaenyra herself rode Cyrax, a golden dragon, probably hatched during the reign of Jaehaerys I. While of formidable size, she wasn't experienced in battle and hadn't hunted in years, she was, essentially, a domesticated dragon, though still not to be easily written off. The other black dragons were all young and ridden by the younger generation. Jaceris, Lucerys, and Joffrey Valerian rode Vermax, Arax, and Tyraxes, respectively, all dragons that had hatched from their own cradle eggs. Bela Targaryen had Moondancer, a young, pale green dragon of perhaps nine years old who had yet to be mounted. 
Aegon the Younger had Stormcloud, hatched from his own cradle egg, who was of similar size and age, and also had yet to be ridden. Their siblings, Reyna and Viserys, both carried dragon eggs with them, hoping to hatch their own, and thus join the impressive ranks of dragon riders in their extended family. And on the subject of eggs, the significance of the, quote, wealth of dragon's eggs housed on Dragonstone cannot be understated, though, like a true Targaryen, Rhaenyra would likely decline to capitalize financially on the eggs at her disposal, although she could probably have bought and sold multiple kingdoms with their cash value, their symbolic importance, combined with the Blacks' ability to potentially replenish their supply of dragons, was enormous. Dragonstone was also home to three riderless dragons, and these are names that must give us pause. Vermithor and Silverwing, the fabled mounts of the old king and good queen Alisande, had not been ridden since their riders' deaths. Both were approaching a hundred years old and were older and larger than any of the others save Vagar. Seasmoke had been Laenor Velaryon's mount, born near the end of the old king's reign and about a third the size of Vagar. He was nonetheless a sizable adult dragon whose youth and agility might lead to some advantage in a fight. Finally, there were the wild dragons who made their homes on the Dragon Mount. Grey Ghost, Sheepstealer, and the Cannibal had been named for aspects of their behavior by the small folk of Dragonstone. Grey Ghost, the youngest, was shy and seldom seen. Sheepstealer, hatched during Jaehaerys the first youth, was a well-known poacher of livestock, particularly sheep, hence the name. <laughs> while the cannibal, the oldest and largest of the three, preferred to feast on the eggs and hatchlings of his domesticated cousins. He's the Magor of the group, basically. His coloring, black with green eyes, is perhaps meant to be symbolic of House Targaryen eating itself here in this war. Fine riders for these six dragons and the Black's dragon force would outstrip their opponents by more than two to one. Because against all that, the Greens counted only six dragons plus one egg. Maelor Targaryen, the youngest son of Aegon the Elder, and Helena carried his egg everywhere, while his twin siblings Jaehaerys and Jaehera had claimed the young dragons Shrykos and Morgul, though neither had ever been ridden. Their mother had Dreamfire, the blue and silver she-dragon hatched during the reign of the Conqueror, who had once been ridden by the queen in the west, Reyna Targaryen. Though one of the largest and oldest living dragons... Dreamfire had never been ridden in battle, and Helena herself wasn't considered to be a warrior, probably neutralizing the usefulness of Dreamfire to the Green's cause. The dragons ridden by her brothers were a different story, however. Aegon, her husband and king, rode Sunfire the Golden, a young male dragon said by some to be the most beautiful dragon ever seen, with golden scales, pink wing membranes, and golden flames. He was young, but said to be large and heavy and was probably born near the end of the old king's reign. Sunfire is known to have been older than his brother Daron's mount, Tessarion the Blue Queen, a beautiful dragon with cobalt blue wings and flames and copper on her crest, belly, and claws. Tessarion was first mounted by Daron around 120 AC and was the youngest and smallest of the green's dragons. Finally, there was Vagar, the mount of Aemond One-Eye. Vagar was the oldest and largest of all the Targaryen dragons. Born on Dragonstone half a century before the conquest, Vagar had carried Queen Visenya, Balon the Spring Prince, and Lena Valerian before being claimed by Aemond in the incident that led to his eye being put out by his nephew Lucerys. 
If Helena's timid nature can be said to have neutralized Dreamfire for the Greens, Bagar's size and significance to House Targaryen very nearly neutralized the Black's advantage of numbers. These dragons, twenty living plus three eggs in the hands of potential riders, represented all of the hopes of House Targaryen. In the end, their deaths would represent the death of those hopes. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. King Takes Rook We have friends in the Riverlands, the prince said. Though not all of them dare show their colors yet, we need a place where they can gather a toehold on the mainland large enough to house a sizable host and strong enough to hold against whatever forces the usurper can send against us. He showed the lords a map. Here, Harrenhal. And so he did. With that, not counting Lord Beesbury, the hostilities had opened, though it doesn't sound like anyone in Harrenhal was slain. They wanted no part of fighting Caraxes. Yeah. Harrenhal is a castle that knows better than perhaps any other what happens when you resist a dragon rider king, and this is Daemon Targaryen we're talking about, a nastier piece of work than Aegon the Conqueror, to be sure, a man who echoes the Red Viper in many ways, and would be just as comfortable with this line from Oberyn. Why, if the gods were cruel, they would have made me my mother's firstborn, and Doran her third. I am a bloodthirsty man, you see, and it is me you must contend with now. Yeah, replace Doran with Viserys and it's a perfect fit. And even more so than the Red Viper, Daemon is famous. Well, infamous, perhaps. And older than Oberyn, too. His infamy longer established. In other words, everyone knows he's a bloodthirsty man. In other other words, there are a litany of reasons why Harrenhal quickly bent the knee to him. Harrenhal at the time was held by House Strong, one of the more powerful houses in all of Westeros. The Castellan was Sir Simon Strong, an older man, thus undoubtedly not an exception to the notion that Damon's reputation preceded him. Lord Laris Strong was, of course, the master of Whisperers, so taking the castle of such a notable and powerful green, when many in the realm thought the blacks had little hopes, was a very big deal. Not only that, some of Laris' family was captured and held as hostage, including a person of great interest, though not quite yet in our narrative, Alice Rivers. The wealth of House Strong at the time was considerable. This is not the Heron Hall we're familiar with from A Song of Ice and Fire. It's not any bigger, and it's just as burnt up, but don't let that fool you. Let's explain why. It is, of course, difficult to get by when your bills exceed your income, and that's an apt description of Harrenhal during the time it was held by House Went in Song of Ice and Fire proper. By Robert's reign, they couldn't afford the upkeep on such an insanely large castle, and that's why we see Arya noting that parts of the castle were unused during her time there. During other houses' tenures, parts of it were unused as well, as affording that place wasn't a problem unique to the Wents. But this was not the case for House Strong, nor even those who eventually followed them, House Lotston. That may sound contradictory, but there's a very simple reason why certain houses who held Harrenhal struggled due to lack of funds, and others were a powerhouse. The difference in now versus then 
is that the Strongs and the Lothstons had far more of the surrounding territory. House Went seems to have remained loyal to House Targaryen, or at least to Rhaegar, during Robert's rebellion, and so they possibly lost lands when Robert took the throne. But back during the dance, the rulers of Harren's Folly were in a different situation altogether. More lands means more taxes, not to mention more soldiers to man the walls and such. With sufficient taxation, Harren Hall is capable of dominating a region and possibly beyond, if ever given the chance, which to date it has not been. But many kings on the Iron Throne have been careful to check the power of Harrenhal by limiting the lands they hold, and thus keeping them in a perpetual state of debt. It was a clever thing for Robert to do, which perhaps means it was John Aaron's idea. More to the point, Damon taking Harrenhal during the dance was a much bigger deal than Tywin taking it during the War of the Five Kings, or Roose Bolton taking it from Tywin's Castellan Sir Amory Lorch, and so forth. It did change hands quite a few times. Despite that, like the War of the Five Kings, the dance also sees Harrenhal change hands several times. But this first time was the most impactful because of the surprise, because of the captured wealth, which did not change hands again, as far as we know. But most importantly, because such a shift to power so early on caused a domino effect. Taking it not only gave them a formidable and central rallying point for their armies, it was a great way to dispel the notion that the Greens' advantage was overwhelming. Potential black supporters who were wary or fearful or calculatingly pragmatic, when they heard, surely felt some of their concerns abated, and that might be putting it lightly. Damon Targaryen's infamy was well-deserved. He's not a good man and did many things to prove it. But the respect he commanded as a warrior and leader of warriors was perhaps as equally well-deserved. He carved a kingdom out on the Stepstones, after all, one of the most violent and unstable places in the nearby known world. He was also a man who made the city watch into the gold cloaks, which wasn't just an equipment upgrade. It came with training and perhaps some of Damon's bloodthirstiness. This is highly relevant to the notion of gaining support, as what we've just described is not exactly a man you want on the other side. The Greens had no one like him. Uh, Sir Kristen Cole was every bit a warrior and commander, perhaps even more so in certain ways. After all, he defeated Damon in one-on-one -on -one combat in attorney setting, though Damon was armed with Dark Sister, not Attorney Blade. But in a non-attorney setting, Cole rides a horse and Damon rides the Bloodworm. Aemond was the most dangerous dragon rider on the green side, but he had none of Daemon's experience, and though he may have had some of Daemon's skill at fighting, he was quite talented from what we hear. He will prove to be a poor leader of men, not the kind men love to follow, which Daemon is. And so it was that many houses, previously undeclared, soon saw the banner of Queen Rhaenyra flying above their castles and carried by their armies as they marched to Harrenhal to fight under the great Prince Daemon. Many, but not all. Not unlike Robert's Rebellion, few regions rose wholesale for one side or the other. One of the key examples is the Riverlands. Hoster Tully, upon declaring for Robert, immediately went after some of his own vassals who had declared for Ares instead of following their liege lord. During the dance, the Riverlands was similarly disunited, and thus it wasn't long before neighbors, at peace a short time ago, 
found themselves on opposite sides of a war that was just getting started. Before we get into what happened next in the Riverlands, let's return for a short time to the diplomatic side of the plan. The War of the Words We must fight this war with words before we go to battle. The prince declared. The lords of the great houses held the key to victory, Damon insisted. Their bannermen and vassals would follow where they led. When Damon spoke these words in the Black Council, they led, as we said, to Rhaenyra's two eldest sons volunteering and being chosen as envoys. On Dragonback, they would make splendid symbols of Targaryen power, and so it had been determined that Jacarius and Vermax would head north, with multiple stops on his mission, while Lucerius and Arax would go south to the place where the blacks expected to find the warmest and most certain welcome. Jacarius' first stop would be the Vale of Arryn. Lady Jane Arryn had been Lady of the Vale since her own father's death 32 years previously when she was three years old. Given the closeness of their ages and the fact that Rhaenyra's mother, Aima Arryn, had two half-brothers, one of whom had most likely succeeded their father, Lord Roderick, it seems pretty likely that Jane and Rhaenyra were first cousins. Jane certainly acknowledged their shared blood as well as their shared circumstances. Thrice of mine own kin sought to replace me. My cousin Sir Arnold is wont to say that women are too soft to rule. Women must band together, Lady Jane said as she pledged her support for Rhaenyra. She asked for but one thing in exchange. Dragons. The Eyrie was vulnerable only from the sky, she declared, a fact proved first by Queen Visenya during the conquest and just now by Jacarius's own arrival on Dragonback. Send a dragon rider to protect the Eyrie, and the men of the Vale would stand with Rhaenyra. Jace agreed readily and then flew on, first to Sisterton, where he accepted the fealty of Lords Borel and Sunderland, and then on to White Harbor. Lord Desmond Manderley's support came at a somewhat higher price than Lady Jane's, reminding Jacarius of the marriage alliance between his great-grandsire and Princess Viserra Targaryen that had failed to come to pass after the princess's untimely death, he requested a similar alliance in exchange for his support. When Jace agreed that his brother Joffrey would marry Lord Desmond's youngest daughter, House Manderley's support was assured, and Jacarius and Vermax continued northward to Winterfell. Lord Cregan welcomed Prince Jacarius warmly. Lord Stark had been through his own succession struggle when the uncle who had ruled during his minority had proved difficult to unseat, requiring Cregan to seize his own birthright through force of arms. Apparently, Cregan also saw something of his dead younger brother in the Targaryen prince and took a liking to the young man. They reportedly spent the visit hunting, training, and drinking together, achieving a camaraderie that resulted in an oath of brotherhood and an agreement that would come to be known as the Pact of Ice and Fire. As Cregan Stark was a widower with but one son, and Jaceres had no sisters to make marriage alliances for, even his own cousins had been betrothed to himself and his brother Lyceris since childhood, it was agreed that Jace would send his firstborn daughter to Winterfell at the age of seven to be fostered until she was old enough to be married to Cregan's son, Rickon, now just one year old. The pact would represent the first time a Stark Targaryen marriage had been proposed, and the fact that it was called the Pact of Ice and Fire may have been the key to another Targaryen prince, 150 years in the future, interpreting a prophecy concerning a Song of Ice and Fire as a union of Stark and Targaryen. But according to Mushroom, there may have been another Stark Targaryen alliance of sorts 
that took place during Jocerius's visit. Kraken had a bastard sister called Sarah Snow, with whom, according to the dwarf, Jace became smitten and actually spent a night with, claiming her maidenhead. As Mushroom tells it, Cregan became angry once he learned of this until Sarah, whom Mushroom calls the Wolf Girl, calmed him down by telling him that she and the prince had actually spoken vows before the Winterfell heart tree, and only when they were man and wife in the eyes of the old gods did she surrender her maidenhead there in front of the Weirwood's watchful eyes. So if this story is true, and in many cases we do tend to believe Mushroom when he spins his tails, we might get to see it play out in Bran's Weirwood visions one day. Voyeurism aside, since there don't appear to have been any offspring from this so-called marriage, it can't properly be termed a Stark Targaryen union, which leaves Jon Snow safely still the only known product of such a union. But what's interesting is this story being told side by side with the story of the Pact of Ice and Fire. A Targaryen prince, sworn to another, falls in love with a wolf girl and holds a secret marriage in front of a weirwood tree. It's almost like we're supposed to make some sort of connection to the events of the main narrative. Perhaps Jace would have revived polygamy for Sarah Snow had he lived. Perhaps if they, or his unborn daughter and Rickon Stark, had had children together, the impact of the union of ice and fire in the main story wouldn't have been so great or would have happened sooner. As unlikely as any of those things are, we'll never know since, as it happened, we're left with only a set of strong parallels and hints that point more or less directly at R, L, and J. And since we mentioned Mushroom, he states one other peculiar thing about Jace's visit to Winterfell that might still be significant in the main story. Jacarius's dragon Vermax is noted to have been male and also to have been very unhappy with the cold weather at Winterfell. But in Mushroom's testimony, he also states that the dragon, quote, left a clutch of eggs in the depths of Winterfell's crypts where the hot springs warm the walls. Close inspection of Gildane's repudiation of Mushroom reveals that Vermax's gender has been interpreted based on the fact that there was no evidence he ever had an egg elsewhere. Hardly a compelling case. But Septon Barth, who we find to be at least as reliable as Mushroom, apparently believed that while it's notoriously tricky to assign a gender to a living dragon, there is another interpretation of dragon gender possible, a belief that also seems to be held by Maester Aemon Targaryen himself, who said, Dragons are neither male nor female. Barth saw the truth of that, but now one and now the other, as changeable as flame. So will there come a day when Mushroom's testimony is proved to be true? With regard to both of these assertions, Sarah Snow's marriage to Jacarius and Vermax's clutch of eggs, it's possible that either could be significant in the main story, and both could have a significant bearing on our understanding of R plus L equals J, with a possible stark Targaryen love affair of the past potentially offering valuable parallels and the possible presence of dragon eggs at Winterfell offering potential proof of Jon's heritage. We'll have to wait and see on these fascinating sidebars as it's time to turn our attention to Jace's brother Lucerys and his mission to Storm's End. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks to the History of Westeros, Queen of Love and Beauty, from the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. A Laurel of Glory in the Name of Love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien and Arbiter of Scotch, from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson. And the History of Westeros, Blood Riders, Vorsaki, a wielder of a Valyrian steel arrack with a dragonbone hilt, and Kohilkoi, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip, Gehenna. In the history of Westeros, Ironborn Captains, Black Meadow Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge, Sir Selvas Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of Trident of the North, Lord Chucklaz, Captain of the Dromont Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil, John Gregor, Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God, Sir Kieran of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Dromond armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen, Archer Queen, Captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate, Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. Jasana the Just, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey, Captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling Mason of House Bailey. Beneath the Gold, a podcast focusing on lesser-known A Song of Ice and Fire characters. Prakash, the Lord Protector of the Gallifreyans, Captain of Tardis of the Seven Seas, and Tempest of House Brewer, Captain of the Summer Storm. Valyrian Steel patrons Hortense of Ashai, Jauna of House Aiko, Amber, Sammy, Tim, B-Word, Fatima, Girl with No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Margie the Mage, John H, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, Oxheart, Boss, Arodo, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Blythe Spirit, the Sothorian, Lady of the Frostfangs, Christine, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. When Diplomacy Fails Up until this point, as expected by both the Green and Black Councils, alliances had been falling more or less along the lines of the supporters of Laenor Valerian and Viserys Targaryen in the Great Council of 101. 
While the Greens plotted in secret immediately after King Viserys' death, Sir Otto Hightower had examined the chronicles of the council and made note of which houses could be expected to support Rhaenyra's claim. Stark, Manderley, and Dustin from the north, Blackwood in the Riverlands, Arryn and its vassals from the Vale, and, of course, House Valerian and the lords of the eastern shores, Celtigar, bar Emmon, Massey, Crab, and Tarth. And so it was, with two notable exceptions. The first, of course, was Daemon Targaryen himself, who had been a passionate supporter of his brother in 101, and with good reason, since Viserys' ascension and the dismissal of female claims meant that Daemon himself would become his brother's heir. Or so he thought. Twenty-eight years later, things stood very differently for the prince of the city, who had radically altered his position on the succession in order to keep himself near the top through his marriage to his niece. Or maybe we're being cynical and Damon just supported his big brother in all his decisions. <laughs> it was pretty obviously self-interest. The other exception to Lenor's versus Rhaenyra's supporters would soon be known to all, though for the time being, he was being taken for granted due to his blood ties with Princess Rhaenys and, by extension, her grandchildren, one of whom was, ostensibly, Rhaenyra's heir. Lord Boros Baratheon had inherited Storm's End from his father, Lord Boromund, the half-brother of the old king and uncle to Princess Rhaenys. Boros was known to be a belligerent man, with four daughters whose rights he might want to protect, and where he went, the Stormlanders were sure to follow. However, one of the first actions the Green Council had taken, unbeknownst to the Blacks, was to send their own envoy to Storm's End to forge an alliance. The envoy Sir Otto Hightower chose for this purpose made sense, as Prince Aemon was free to negotiate a marriage alliance with one of Lord Boros' daughters. But it was also one of the greatest tragedies of the conflict, and Aemon's visit to Storm's End would ultimately mark a point of no return for the two sides. Mounted upon Vagar, Aemon arrived in the Stormlands unsure of his reception, though undoubtedly secure in his ability to impress. With his storied and gigantic dragon, his fierce demeanor, which included a sapphire in place of his missing eye, and his offer of marriage. Lord Boros received him with open arms, feasts, and hunts, if the chronicles are true. Acknowledging his kinship with Rhaenyra and her blacks, he also declared that they had taken his support for granted for too long. Contrary to any hope that he might see a chance to protect his own daughter's rights, he declared that one day he would have a son of his own, and then the elder sisters must yield to him. Boros was sure that once Rhaenyra saw that he meant to support her brother, she would also give in. And so he apparently set about making plans with Aemon for the future marriage of the prince to one of his daughters. Thus it was that when Lucerius Valerian arrived at Storm's End ahead of a gathering storm, he would find Vagar in the yard as he and Erex descended, roaring a challenge at the new arrivals. Surely Lucerys knew what Vagar's presence meant, and we have to wonder if he was frightened. The enmity between the two young men being old and deep on account of the incident that had led to Aemon's missing eye, and Vagar being, well, Vagar. To Luke's credit, he entered the hall with his mother's message and addressed himself directly to Lord Boros, ignoring his uncle, who greeted him with numerous jabs and insults. Sources report that Boros was alternately red-faced with shame, drunk, fearful, or thoroughly enjoying himself upon being caught out by circumstances, entertaining Aemond, knowing what we know of all the parties involved, we think it was probably a case of all the above. That Boros had been feasting Aemond was known, so perhaps he was drunk and even a bit fearful, 
in the way having two quarrelsome princelings and their dragons in your castle might make one. Perhaps he did feel some shame at abandoning his cousin's cause in his own interest, and it seems very likely that he was indeed enjoying the twist of fate that had the two opposing sides of the conflict vying for his support. It can be said that Lord Boros made at least an attempt to keep the princes from arguing. He had Rhaenyra's letter read by his maester, as he himself apparently couldn't read. However, the message it contained did little to improve the situation for Luke, since the Black Council had clearly not anticipated the challenge for House Baratheon's support by the Greens. The letter made no mention of any marriage alliance. Perhaps Rhaenyra would have been wise to offer Aegon the Younger or Viserys for one of Lord Boris's daughters, or at least maybe have coached Luke in doing so should Lord Boros prove truculent. As it happened, Lord Boros indeed did. He demanded to know which one of his daughters Luke would marry if he did as Rhaenyra requested. Luke Lucerys, betrothed to his cousin Reyna for as long as he could remember, could only reply awkwardly that he wasn't free to marry. Was this just a ploy by the wily Stormlord to move the blame for his own betrayal to Lucerys and Rhaenyra? We can't know for sure, but we do know what he said next. I thought as much. Go home, pup, and tell the bitch your mother that the Lord of Storm's End is not a dog that she can whistle up at need to set against her foes. When Luke, sensing that his uncle had won the day, turned to leave, Aemon tried to stop him. Calling Lucerius strong, he demanded payment for his missing eye, challenging the younger prince to put his own eye out. When Luke, remembering the promises he'd made to his mother before leaving Dragonstone, declared that he was an envoy, not a knight, Aemon replied that he was a craven and a traitor, and that, quote, I will have your eye or your life strong. Lord Boros intervened at that point, stating that Lucerys was indeed an envoy and, quote, I want no bloodshed beneath my roof. In this, Boros acknowledged not only the rights of envoys, but the principles of guest right. Both young men were guests under his roof. Neither could be harmed or offer injury to each other while under his protection. His guards came between the two and escorted Lucerys back to the yard where Arax waited in the rain. And there it might have ended but for Lord Boros's second daughter. Marius had been noted to be the cleverest of the four girls, but also as the least attractive. Aemon clearly hadn't chosen her as his bride, and perhaps she was angry at that, or perhaps being clever and female, she was angry at her father's choice of alliance. Whatever her reasons, her words to Aemond can only be described as goading. Quote, was it one of your eyes he took or one of your balls? I am so glad you chose my sister. I want a husband with all his parts. Seething with rage and humiliation, Aemond requested Lord Boros's leave to depart. Although the outcome must have been writ plain as day, Lord Boros could only shrug and say... It is not for me to tell you what to do when you are not beneath my roof. Aemon rushed to the castle yard. A storm was raging when Aemon mounted Vagar and went in pursuit of Lucerys and Arax. The smaller dragon, being younger and swifter, might have made its escape on a fair day. But as it was, the conditions made flying difficult for both dragons, and the smaller Arax was struggling to stay aloft. When they met over Shipbreaker Bay... Watchers on the castle walls could see blasts of flame amidst the lightning of the storm and hear the shrieks of the dragons through the thunder. 
Vagar was five times larger than Arax, and so when she fell upon the younger dragon from above, the outcome was certain. Against her size, her experience, and her fury, Arax had no protection. He and his rider fell broken into Shipbreaker Bay, and only Arax's head and neck, torn from their body, were ever seen again. Some say Vagar snatched Lucerius from Arax's back as he fell and devoured him whole, while Munkin discounts that in favor of the belief that Luke fell into the waters along with his dragon. But in reality, only Aemond One-Eye could have said for sure how things played out, and he never did. For his part in the proceedings, he earned the nickname Aemond Kinslayer and the undying hatred of his half-sister. His own mother, upon learning what he'd done, is reported to have exclaimed, Mother, have mercy on us all, while his grandfather, Sir Otto, demanded, You only lost one eye. How could you be so blind? Back on Dragonstone, Rhaenyra reportedly collapsed at hearing the news, while Luke's younger brother Joffrey swore vengeance and had to be physically restrained from going after Aemon. As the Queen's Council debated what response to make, a raven arrived from her husband in the Riverlands. An eye for an eye, a son for a son, Prince Damon wrote. Lucerys shall be avenged. The War of Quills and Ravens had ended. The War of Fire and Blood would soon begin. Blood and Cheese Early in A Game of Thrones, Arya is given a sacred task by her teacher, Sirio Pharrell. Catch the cats. All of them. A reader might think it's a metaphor, a wolf girl catching cats, which one could see as lions. An obviously fitting symbol in the Red Keep as it's being taken over by the Lannisters, and there are a lot of cats there. But the cats have been living in the Red Keep since long before Cersei, and Jaime, and Tyrion, and even Tywin. And unlike the Lannisters, who quite brutally forced their way in, the actual cats were invited Sir Amory Lorch killed Princess Rhaenys, and many believe her cat still haunts the Lannisters. It once stole a chicken from Tywin while he was eating it. Arya had amazingly caught all the many cats in the Red Keep but one. This very same one, it seems, Balerion. That was her last challenge. As Arya says, and I quote, Catching cats was hard, but this cat was the hardest. Of course it's fitting that a cat named Balerion, who hates the Lannisters, lives in the Red Keep and is hard to catch. But also it's this cat who leads Arya down into the secret depths, built by Magor the Cruel and mastered by only a few, such as Varys. There, just past the skulls of the Targaryen dragons, including the one the cat is named after, Arya hears Varys plotting with Illyrio, and they are discussing their grand plan to restore what seems to be the Black Dragon, in this case, House Blackfire. It's funny that they were not the first to use the tunnels in the Red Keep to install a black dragon claimant on the Iron Throne. Really, a lot of dragon colors remain unused. People just have to recycle black over and over, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, as I was saying, during the Dance of the Dragons, it was the black faction who used those same tunnels as part of a goal to seat their claimant on the Iron Throne and to exact revenge for Lucerius' death. An eye for an eye, a sun for a sun. Prince Damon had already begun to take action when he informed the rest of the Black Council using that language. This would ensure that it would be war, and one could argue that the death of Rhaenyra's son had already pushed them beyond the point of no return, making war a certainty, but the scheme Damon launched ensured that outcome 
without any possible doubt. Let it not be forgotten, in his youth Daemon Targaryen had been the prince of the city, his face and love familiar to every cut-purse whore and gambler in Flea Bottom. The prince still had friends in the low places of King's Landing, and followers amongst the gold cloaks. He reached out, we can suppose, via trusted messengers, as he didn't leave Harrenhal himself, that we know of, and indeed, he is rather distinct. Targaryens are many things, and there are exceptions, but blending into a crowd usually isn't among their skill set. Though Magor the Cruel executed the builders to conceal the secrets of the Red Keep, many of those secrets had been relearned, and it was this knowledge that Daemon leveraged. Unbeknownst to King Aegon, the Hand, or the Queen Dowager, he had allies at court as well, even on the Green Council. And one other go-between, a special friend he trusted utterly, who knew the wine sinks and rat pits that festered in the shadow of the Red Keep as well as Daemon himself once had, and moved easily through the shadows of the city. To this pale stranger he reached out now, by secret ways to set a terrible vengeance into motion. Amidst the stews of Flea Bottom, Prince Damon's go-between found suitable instruments. One had been a sergeant in the city watch. Big and brutal, he had lost his gold cloak for beating a whore to death whilst in a drunken rage. The other was a rat-catcher in the Red Keep. Their true names are lost to history. They are remembered, would that they were not, as blood and cheese. These two men entered the tunnels of the Red Keep. You might wonder why they didn't just go straight for the king, but this is actually simple enough to answer. The king's guard. Aegon didn't have a full seven, again, yet. However so, the rest of his family lacked the protection of the White Cloaks. This was known and exploited. Blood and Cheese snuck into Alicent's bedchamber in the Tower of the Hand and bound her, killing her bedmaid. There, Alicent waited, not knowing what would happen next, except that her daughter and grandchildren would be coming soon to say goodnight, as was their custom. When they arrived, I suspect the guards immediately saw Cheese holding a knife to the bound and gagged Queen Alicent, or else someone, if not more than one someone, would have yelled or screamed. There were at least two guards and Queen Helena had her three children. Regardless, blood emerged from the shadows to quickly murder the non-Kingsguard, protecting Queen Helena, the two princes, and the princess. Cheese then told Helena to choose a son. Dowager Queen Alicent and Princess Jehera were completely helpless, one bound and gagged, the other just a child. No mother could be expected to make this choice, but it was that or worse. So she chose the younger, Prince Maelor, over the green heir to the throne, Prince Jaehaerys. It's speculated that the combination of Maelor not being the heir and being too young to understand what was going on led to that choice, but it doesn't really matter why, as her choice was only bait meant to make her suffer further. Like something Ramsay Snow would come up with. Blood slew her heir, after all. Now, somehow, I doubt that Helena, her daughter, and her other son kept quiet at this point. Blood and Cheese had no reason to linger anyway, and they left with the young prince's head. Queen Helena would be left with her two living children and the headless body of her eldest son, and at least two guards and her mother still bound and gagged. 
There would be blood everywhere. This false choice bit, was it just random cruelty added on by blood and cheese, or was it part of their orders? And if it was ordered, was it Lady Misery or Prince Damon himself who gave the order? Let's think for a moment about how Prince Damon was able to pull this off. It's said he had contacts at court still, and of course the gold cloaks and the criminal underground, the latter is where we should focus. This is likely how he knew Lady Masseria, who prior to this was clearly engaged in other shady activity and wasn't really a member of the nobility. Surely she didn't go from clean hands straight to facilitating the assassination of royalty. That's the kind of job for an experienced operator. And neither could Prince Damon conjure these connections from nowhere. In other words, during his time as Lord Commander, he very likely took bribes and equivalent considerations. How else would a man charged with eliminating such criminal elements have the ability to order such an action from afar? This is equivalent to the kind of hit that only top-level mafia bosses and spy organizations like the CIA, KGB, Mossad, or whoever can pull off. Lady Misery knew Prince Damon well. What a message this must have been for her to receive. She had to know carrying out this order would mean having to hide afterwards. And what he must have promised her in exchange for this because of all that. Well, actually, we can guess. Lady Misery would later be Master of Whisperers in all but name. These dots are likely connected. Another motivation may have been present as well, however. It was also revenge for her. Never forget that nearly 25 years previously, King Viserys had ordered Lady Misery to return to Lys, and during that voyage, she lost her own pregnancy by Prince Damon during a storm. She may have very well seen this as blood for blood and a child for a child as well. King Viserys was dead, but these were his grandchildren after all, and as far as revenge goes, that's pretty acceptable. Blood was motivated by money. He was caught with the prince's head, trying to leave the city. Queen Allison ordered him tortured and wanted the names of his wife and children so that she could bathe in their blood. Fire and Blood says the sources don't say if this occurred. That is, they say they don't know if the actual bathing in blood occurred. Note that they don't challenge the notion that Queen Allison gave this order. The torture lasted for 13 days, we're told. He revealed the names of Cheese and Lady Miseria and, of course, Prince Damon. Also, that he was leaving the city to collect his reward at Harrenhal, not far away. It was Lars Strong, Master of Whispers, who oversaw the torture. Which means this was quite a swing of fortune for blood. Had the killer escaped King's Landing, Damon would likely have paid him from the treasury he seized at Harrenhal, which had belonged to Lord Laris. A very strong blood or gold situation for a man named Blood. I do not, however, feel bad for him. Well, maybe a little, actually, because 13 days of torture is perhaps more than enough justice to have been done. But I wouldn't argue if he disagreed. But let's consider a less gruesome angle to this. Because, again, this is a man who just used secret tunnels that Laris himself, a man who holds the same job and similar name to Varys, in other words, Laris may have asked Blood some questions about those very same tunnels shown to him by Cheese the Ratcatcher, gaining information he might not have had before. In uncertain times like this, that might be useful. Indeed, a short while from now, Laris does seem to vanish for a while. The tunnels could have a lot to do with the how and maybe the where, 
and his fellow members on the Green Council would surely be asking questions about how this could have happened. The tunnels were surely mentioned. That brings us back to the story of Arya chasing the cat Balerion below these same tunnels. She doesn't know it, but these child killer assassins are the reason she had any cats to chase at all. Without their sneaking through these same tunnels about 170 years before, there might still be rat catchers working the tunnels in the Red Keep. In his grief and fury, King Aegon II commanded that all the city's rat catchers be taken out and hanged, and this was done. Sir Otto Hightower brought 100 cats into the Red Keep to take their place. Though physically unharmed, Queen Helena was sadly no longer capable of being a mother and sank into madness and depression, refusing to eat or bathe or share chambers with her husband the king. She could not even look at Prince Maelor, knowing that she had chosen him to die. News of the event spread quickly, and of course it did. What a tale to tell! Unbelievable, even without exaggeration. Those who doubted could perhaps be forgiven. It does sound rather outrageous to sneak into the Red Keep and kill a single royal while leaving the others, all with this business of forcing the mother to choose. It could see many dismissing such a story outright. Those who were both wise and did not doubt the rumors would be shaken, or worse, they'd know that the dragons were at each other's throats now, that a prince on either side was dead, that dragons would fly, and that Westeros would burn. And of course, they'd be right. Gildane tells us, The dance of the dragons entered a new stage after the death of Lucerys Valerian in the Stormlands, and the murder of Prince Jaehaerys before his mother's eyes in the Red Keep. For both the Blacks and the Greens, blood called to blood for vengeance. And all across the realm, lords called their banners, and armies gathered, and began to march. And, just as it did in the War of the Five Kings, the fighting broke out in the Riverlands first. The Rivers Run Black when Prince Damon sent forth his call to arms, they rose up all along the rivers, knights and men-at-arms and humble peasants who yet remembered the realm's delight, so beloved of her father, and the way she smiled and charmed them as she made her progress through the riverlands in her youth. Hundreds and then thousands buckled on their sword belts and donned their mail, or grabbed a pitchfork or a hoe or a crude wooden shield, and began to make their way to Harrenhal, to fight for Viserys' little girl. If that last line makes you think of the Hill Clansmen coming to fight for Ned's little girl, well, I bet that's what George had in mind, too. The clans deeply respected Ned and the Starks in general. To be fair, loyalty to Rhaenyra settled some 20-plus years ago is not nearly the same as countless generations of loyalty to House Stark. Yet to some, an oath is an oath, not to be broken lightly or ever. And surely there were times in the long history of the North when Stark fought Stark for the crown of winter. Heck, we just showed how Lord Cregan's uncle did that very thing. And the clans in such a time would have to make a choice as well. And it would be perhaps reminiscent of this one. Keeping ourselves in mind of ancient history and its grand cycles, it should surprise no one that one of the first conflicts in the Riverlands would involve that most ancient of feuds, 
the one between Blackwood and Bracken. The Blackwoods were for Rhaenyra, the Brackens for Aegon. That's clearly not a recipe for peace. In fact, it's an invitation. At least that's what Lord Samwell Blackwood seems to have been thinking when he began sending raiders into Bracken territory. They burned crops, stole or killed livestock, sacked villages, and because they're Blackwoods, they destroyed septs as well. Lord Humphrey's son, Sir Amos Bracken, responded with force, leading a small army into Blackwood territory. Now, Lord Blackwood was surely not surprised that Sir Amos was responding with an attack of his own, and in turn surprised the Bracken army when they were camped beside a mill. Now, the lands of Bracken and Blackwood lie roughly on opposite sides of the Red Fork, and we're guessing that the Brackens were camped on their side of the river, waiting for dawn to come to cross. Since the battle was said to have been fought amidst the light of the burning mill, the Blackwoods likely attacked at night and set fire to the mill at the outset. It may have been to provide a distraction while the Blackwoods attacked from a different direction, or maybe just to light the field of battle. This is why we believe the battle was fought on the Bracken side, since the Blackwoods likely wouldn't burn their own mill. It's a valuable piece of property, after all. And the Brackens probably wouldn't have had time to start any fires while they were being ambushed, and that really doesn't fit. Regardless, it was a nasty battle that ended with the Bracken forces trapped between the Blackwoods and another army led by Prince Damon. Note how Damon, an admittedly bloodthirsty man, the prince that had engineered blood and cheese, a man with a battle-tested dragon, has not used said dragon to burn anything that we know of in these Riverlands engagements, nothing that the histories take note of anyway. Perhaps he had Caraxes blast some flame as a display, but Harrenhal just gave up when they saw him, and Caraxes' flames didn't really seem to play any role in the battle at Stonehenge, though it's said he did participate, and we know a dragon can do massive damage even without its flames. Still, you'd think the Battle of the Burning Mill during the Dance of the Dragons would have involved dragons, but nope, we're told it was simply put to the torch. Picture it, though, especially if the mill was still spinning, it would be quite a sight in the darkness, and that could very well serve as a signal, as it could be seen from far away at night, especially to someone, say, on Dragonback. They'd know that the battle had begun. Prince Damon could see that mill burning and begin his assault on Stonehenge. The way dragons are used throughout the war, and by whom, is something we're keeping track of when we can, because it's fun. In this case, there's nothing overtly stated, yet it seems like Caraxes made a major difference, or at least could have. The coordination of the attack at the burning mill with the taking of Stonehenge strongly implies to us the possibility that Prince Damon used Caraxes from up high to know where the Bracken armies were ahead of time, or during, probably both, while the Brackens would have had no way of knowing where the Blackwoods were. Back to the action. We're told the Brackens acquitted themselves fairly well, despite being caught unawares. They inflicted many losses on the Blackwoods. Lord Samuel Blackwood and Sir Amos Bracken came together in single combat, perhaps one seeking each other out or both, the rage of thousands of years of bitterness at the other's house surging and raging. Perhaps wearing a cloak of raven feathers like his descendant Lord Titos Blackwood, Lord Samwell would be easily identified on sight. The sigil of Raventree Hall is rather distinct, after all. 
The rearing horse of House Bracken is notable as well, especially to a Blackwood. And even amidst the chaos and darkness and flame, some might note the significance of a Lord Blackwood and the son of Lord Bracken engaging in single combat. Some few may have stopped to watch, such as Lord Blackwood's sister Alisanne, also known as Black Alley. Perhaps it was epic, perhaps it was sloppy and short, but surely they recalled crossing swords before. They had dueled for Rhaenyra's favor some 17 years past when she was the uncontested heir touring the area and the realm's delight besides. Sir Amos Bracken won that duel for her favor, and Lord Blackwood surely never forgot it. But there was no revenge to be had for Lord Samwell, not directly anyway. Sir Amos slew him, and though he was unable to savor the victory, it could be argued he died doing what he loved, killing Blackwoods. But he was killed a moment later by a werewood arrow through the eye, supposedly from the bow of Black Alley, who may have dropped him the moment he slew her brother. This is said to be uncertain, but I tend to believe it. There would be few archers shooting werewood arrows, even in the Blackwood army. This was obviously a major turning point in the battle either way. Both lords dying well, one lord and one son of a lord. This surely caused some chaos. Many other grievous losses were suffered by both sides in what became known as the Battle of the Burning Mill, and when the Brackens finally broke and fled back unto their own lands under the command of Sir Amos's bastard half-brother Sir Raylan Rivers, it was only to find that Stone Ridge had been taken in their absence. Led by Prince Damon on Caraxes, a strong host made up of Darries, Roots, Pipers and Freys had captured the castle by storm in the absence of so much of House Bracken's strength. Lord Humphrey Bracken and his remaining children had been made captive, along with his third wife and baseborn paramour. Rather than see them come to harm, Sir Raylan yielded. With the defeat of Stonehenge, nearly all of the Riverlands was for the Blacks. Those few who may have sided with the Greens under better circumstances not only had little local support after these losses, they had no help at all from their king. That does not inspire much confidence, does it? Meanwhile, Prince Damon, King Consort, Queen Rhaenyra, and legendary warrior was leading their enemies from nearby, staring them down with his rather intimidating and equally legendary dragon, the Bloodworm. The rogue prince was living up to his reputation, leading both a successful military campaign and pulling off an assassination. After the Ravens. Both sides had spent the first weeks of the conflict gathering allies, and, as predicted by many, the dividing lines had shadowed the divisions of the Great Council of 101. Following Aemon's mission to Storm's End, the Greens could count some of the most powerful families in the realm as supporters. House Lannister and House Baratheon brought their vassals to Aegon's cause in force. But the Lords Paramount of the Reach and Riverlands had both failed to commit. Lord Grover Tully had supported Viserys in 101 and declared that he would support Aegon and agnatic succession in general in the current conflict. But Lord Grover was an old man, near death, and his grandson, Sir Elmo, refused to commit to either side on the grounds that River Run had no defense against Dragonfire. And really, who does? Riverlands is a large region, well used to being in the center of action, but this short campaign was enough for the Greens in the Riverlands to capitulate entirely. Note 
the list of houses joining Damon at Stonehenge. That was a major group, and many who had been on the fence would shift to black with the wind blowing so strongly in that direction after the taking of Stonehenge and Harrenhal before it. Without a clear decision from their liege lord, the lesser lords of the Riverlands were giving their support as they saw fit, with Derry, Piper, Blackwood, and Frey, led by Lady Sabatha Frey, among others, all declaring for Rhaenyra and leading directly to the defeat of the Greens at Stonehenge and the Burning Mill. Each day, more and more lesser lords and knights in the Riverlands gathered at Harrenhal with Damon. We could say, then, that the Battle of the Burning Mill lit a fire all over the Riverlands, figuratively speaking. Later in the war, it will be a lot more literal. In the Reach, Lord Tyrell was an infant whose regents, including his mother, found they had no appetite for war when a number of their own bannermen, including houses Tarly, Costain, Rowan, and Beesbury, all declared for Rhaenyra. Leaving the High Towers and Red Wines to make their own decisions, House Tyrell declared they would remain neutral. Though Sir Otto begged his nephew, the Lord of the High Tower, to take control of the situation, the support of the Reach Lords was anything but assured. Furthermore, efforts to draw Dorne into the conflict had failed. Prince Corin replied to Sir Otto Hightower's letter requesting an alliance that capitalized on his history of enmity with Prince Daemon Targaryen with these words. Dorne has danced with dragons before. I would sooner sleep with scorpions. And though both sides had made offers to Dalton Greyjoy, no reply had yet been made. In order to forestall Rhaenyra's advantage at sea, which currently had the ships of House Valerian blockading the entrance to Blackwater Bay, thus choking off sea trade to the capital, Sir Otto sent a message to the Kingdom of the Three Daughters in Essos, offering them exclusive trading rights with King's Landing if they could clear the gullet of the Sea Snake's ships. As he had done with the Prince of Dorne, Sir Otto hoped, with this approach, to capitalize on Daemon Targaryen's history of conflict with the city-states of Essos during his days warring in the Stepstones. But the three daughters were ruled by a council of 33 magisters who did nothing quickly. While this approach might one day bear bitter fruit, for now it represented just another failed effort in the War of Words. For now... We're just getting started, and what a huge turnaround had occurred. The Greens went from thinking that it wouldn't even come to war at all, and if it did, they couldn't lose. Instead, very quickly it became a situation that resembled an even match, or worse maybe. They had taken the initiative only to give it right back via inaction. Interlude, Aegon 2. Every visible symbol of legitimacy belonged to Aegon. He sat the Iron Throne. He lived in the Red Keep. He wore the Conqueror's crown, wielded the Conqueror's sword, and had been anointed by a septon of the faith before the eyes of tens of thousands. Grand Maester Orwile sat in his councils, and the Lord Commander of the King's Guard had placed the crown upon his princely head and he was male, which in the eyes of many made him the rightful king, his half-sister, the usurper. Plus he arguably had the coolest dragon, Sunfire the Golden, not to mention the declarations of support from so many important houses. But despite this big list of stuff, you could make a case that he was losing. In terms of early returns with regards to the action, momentum was entirely with the Blacks. The few battles had gone against King Aegon, 
It appeared that he could not defend his own family in his own castle, and many would not see the nuance in Prince Lucerus having technically being outside Storm's End when he was killed. The notion that the Greens killed an envoy was surely the belief of some, if not many. Thus, politics, intrigue, and public opinion, well, the latter was arguably not in favor of either side, but the Greens weren't doing well in any of those three key areas. They still looked really strong on paper, though, and that's the heart of what came next. King Aegon is not a bright young man, and added to that, he's impatient, lazy, cruel, but above all that, he's scared. One of the few things to his credit seems to be that his initial rejection of the idea to usurp the crown in the first place. It was only after his mother convinced him that he'd be killed that he was frightened into action, and he's been riding that fear ever since. We're told he started drinking heavily to deal with the stress, and this was when the war was just getting started. It doesn't bode well for how he'll handle the rest of the war and other obstacles that come his way. He was convinced this would be easy, and to be fair, this confidence came from his advisors and his mother, not from his own conclusions or strategic understanding. So when things started going wrong, he probably suspected he had been lied to a bit. His immediate goals were short-sighted and personal. He thought more of revenge than in terms of strategy. He yelled and raged, demanding results, but not actually offering any plans or ideas of his own. Given this personality of his, and the general notion of a young king pushed into action by his mother, the queen, and his grandfather, the hand of the king, you might think of Joffrey, and we think that's intentional. The parallels between these two will last right up to the end. So, too, the parallels between Tywin and Sir Otto Hightower, the richest families in Westeros, getting close to the Targaryens. The offer of Rhaegar and Cersei was rejected by King Aerys, so Sir Otto got what Tywin wanted, a marriage for his daughter to the crown prince, followed by that grandson becoming king and being hand of the king to boot. Tywin wound up as hand of the king with his grandson on the throne too, just not on the first try, and with Baratheons instead of Targaryens. Tywin's kids will behave an awful lot like Targaryens, though. A memorable scene in A Song of Ice and Fire is Tyrion jokingly referring to his father's, quote, important letters, with Tywin retorting that wars are won with quills and ravens just as much as battles. Sure enough, the Red Wedding comes not long after, thanks in great part to said quills and ravens. And here we're told that King Aegon confronted his grandfather and told him, quote, thrones are won with swords, not quills, spill blood, not ink, and knocked the ink pot into his lap. <laughs> As far as we know, Sir Otto, though a parallel to Tywin in many ways, didn't seem to have Tywin's steely gaze and overall intimidating bearing or reputation. As always, we cannot take these parallels too far. So Sir Otto was not a battle-tested campaigner who scared just about everyone. He had not exterminated a powerful rival house with a diverted river that we know of. When Joffrey confronted Tywin for his weakness, Tywin shut that down and sent Joffrey to bed, and that settled that. But here in the Dance of the Dragons, King Aegon II is not a young teenager. He's an adult with a dragon. And it was Sir Otto sent to his proverbial bed. The Kingmaker Kristen the Kingmaker had set brother against sister and divided the Kingsguard against itself, bringing on the terrible war the singers named the Dance of the Dragons. Some claimed he acted from ambition, 
for Prince Aegon was more tractable than his willful older sister. Following the death of his son, the defeat of Green supporters in the Riverlands, and the relative success of the Blacks' diplomatic efforts, Aegon had lost all patience with his grandfather's cautious approach. Do something, he had commanded Sir Otto, only to be counseled patience. Never exactly a patient man, Aegon next made a move that would have huge implications to the course of the conflict. It was a move that's strangely reminiscent of Cersei kicking Barristan Selmy out of Joffrey's Kingsguard. Ignoring his mother's defense of her father, Aegon had Sir Otto summoned to the throne room and stripped him of his chain of office. In his place, he would bestow it upon a man that he called a steel fist. My new hand is a steel fist, he boasted. We are done with writing letters. Kristen Cole the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, was Rhaenyra's bitter enemy and the man who had placed the Conqueror's crown on Aegon's head. In our first installment, we related the tale of how Sir Criston came to be Rhaenyra's enemy and an ally of Queen Alicent. Whether Rhaenyra had rejected his pursuit of her or whether it was the exact opposite, as Mushroom would have it, it all came to the same thing. Kristen Cole hated Rhaenyra, and had spent the past 15 years actively working against her and her interests. His influence reached its apex when he led the Green Council in declaring for Aegon, and can rightly be said to have been a huge factor in the conflict that would follow. It was allegedly he who had killed Lord Lyman Beesbury, the lone dissenter to the Green's power play following Viserys' death. Without Sir Criston, would Alicent, Sir Otto, and Aegon have had the support of the other small council members and the Kingsguard who were in King's Landing at the time? It's impossible to say, but we can imagine that as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, he had considerable influence over the military forces in King's Landing. Without someone of his stature on board, it seems pretty doubtful that Sir Otto's coup would have succeeded. And unlike Sir Otto, Sir Criston was a man of action. Aegon's steel fist did not favor writing letters. It is not for you to plead support from your lords like a beggar pleading for arms. You are the lawful king of Westeros, and those who deny it are traitors. It is past time they learn the price of treason. The first to pay the price would be the lords who had once taken oaths to support Rhaenyra as her father's heir and had refused to bend the knee to Aegon. Dozens were being held in the Red Keep, and all were given a final ultimatum. Swear fealty to Aegon or pay the ultimate price. Lords Butterwell, Stokeworth, and Rosby bent the knee. The others, including Lords Hayford, Merriweather, Hart, Buckler, Caswell, and Lady Fell, plus a number of landed knights and retainers, were all executed. As payment for the death of his heir, Aegon now expressed a desire to attack his sister and her family on Dragonstone personally. His wish to take Sunfire and bring fire and blood to his sister was quickly quelled by Sir Criston, who reminded the king of the means the blacks had used in the murder of Jaehaerys. We will pay the princess back in her own bloody coin, he is reported to have said, and his plan was as diabolical as it was clever. You might recall the Cargill twins, Eric and Eric. (laughs) 
Eric and Arik. We're not quite sure how to say them, but you know what I mean. Both these members of the Kingsguard who had wound up on opposite sides of the Divide following King Viserys' death. Sir Eric was with Rhaenyra on Dragonstone when the news of her father's death arrived, and he had remained at her side. His brother Arik in King's Landing had sworn his sword to Aegon. It was to Arik Cargill that Sir Criston turned now. Capitalizing on Arik's familiarity with Dragonstone and his similarity to his twin, Sir Criston suggested that if Sir Eric could gain access to the castle in his Kingsguard white, no one would be able to tell that he wasn't his brother. And so he ordered Sir Eric to go to Dragonstone. His actual mission isn't entirely clear. Was he to kill Rhaenyra, as Grand Maester Munkin suggested, or was he to continue the cycle of a son for a son by assassinating Jacaris and or Joffrey? This is what Mushroom believes. In either case, Sir Eric was reportedly not happy with the assignment, but being a sworn brother of the Kingsguard, did as his commander wished and made his way clandestinely to Dragonstone. Once ashore, he boldly entered the castle in his Kingsguard cloak and armor and made his way to the royal apartments. As fate would have it, he encountered his brother, Enroot, and Sir Eric, knowing why he was there, drew his sword. The duel of Eric and Eric Cargill was the stuff songs are made of. And in fact, songs were made of it. But did it really happen the way Munkin and the singers tell it? Or should we believe Mushroom? In the tragic Technicolor version, the two brothers declared their love for each other and then dueled in the passageway for over an hour while the residents of the castle looked on, unable to tell them apart until the two men died in each other's arms. Mushroom says that Sir Eric came across his brother coming up a spiral staircase. We all know that in a sword fight, the man above has the advantage. In A Dance with Dragons, Theon recalls how Sir Roderick Cassell had taught him and Rob that a single man fighting down a spiral stair could hold off a hundred attackers coming up. In that case, Sir Eric didn't have much chance, as in Mushroom's telling, Sir Eric struck a blow that took his brother's sword arm off at the shoulder. But Eric, falling, was able to grab his brother's cloak and pull him close enough to thrust a dagger into his belly. According to Mushroom, Eric Cargill took four days to die, cursing his brother as a traitor as he did so. Septon Eustace simply says they killed each other, though since neither Eustace nor Munkin, nor any singers for that matter, were present, perhaps in this case the story of Mushroom, who was present after all, as ugly and vicious as it seems, might be closer to the truth. In any case, this first feint by Sir Criston failed, but his take-no-prisoners approach to winning the conflict was just getting started. Having recently accepted the fealty of Lords Rosby and Stokeworth, Cole decided it was time they backed up their pledge of support with, well, actual support, with a little under 2,500 men, two-thirds of whom were, quote, hardened sellswords, Sir Criston marched northeast to first Rosby and then Stokeworth to demand those lords prove their loyalty by adding their men to his. Now with a much larger force under his command, Cole could march against his true objectives. Lord Lars Strong, the Greens' Master of Whisperers, had made careful note of the lords who attended Rainier's Black Council. While many of them were lords of the Narrow Sea, there were a few whose holdings were on the mainland and thus susceptible to attack by the Greens' ground forces. Most notably... Lord Darklin of Duskendale, and Lord Staunton of Rook's Rest. Not only had Lord Gunther Darklin been present at the Black Council, but his uncle, Sir Stefan Darklin, was one of the three Kingsguard knights who supported Rhaenyra. 
Sir Stefan was also part of the group who escaped King's Landing following Viserys' death and brought the crown of Jaehaerys to Dragonstone, where it was used by Daemon to crown his wife. Beyond a doubt, Kristen Cole would have seen the Darklands as the worst of traitors. Located directly northeast of Stokeworth, Duskendale was the first target of Cole's newly strengthened army. Taking the defenders there by surprise, the Green Army sacked the city, burned the harbor, and beheaded Lord Gunther. Any survivors were given the choice of joining their lord in death or joining Aegon. Many chose Aegon, and, thus victorious and reinforced, Sir Criston led his army straight to the northeast once again to the stronghold of House Staunton at Rook's Rest on the shores of Blackwater Bay. There would be no surprise at Rook's Rest. Lord Staunton shut the gates, and those within watched as the Green Army burned and pillaged the countryside. Lord Staunton sent a raven to Dragonstone, begging for help from the Blacks. Accounts of the situation at Dragonstone vary, as usual, but the lone eyewitness, Mushroom, says that Rhaenyra was still devastated over the loss of her son Lucerys and had given over command of the war councils to her kin and principal supporters, Lord Corlys Valerian and his wife, Princess Rhaenys. Mushroom's account is supported by the fact that, nine days after Lord Staunton sent his letter, help arrived at Rook's rest, but it did not come by land nor by sea. The blacks had sent one of their key assets, and she arrived by air. King takes Rook again. The sound of leaven wings was heard across the sea, and the dragon Melis appeared above Rook's rest. The Red Queen, she was called, for the scarlet scales that covered her. The membranes of her wings were pink, her crest, horns, and claws bright as copper. And on her back, in steel and copper armor that flashed in the sun, rode Rhaenys Targaryen, the queen who never was. A dragon rider for more than 40 years, Rhaenys Targaryen was 55 years old. The daughter of the old king's eldest son once held expectations of inheriting the throne for herself, and she had fiercely advocated both her own and then later her children's claims. Given her own history and the fact that Rhaenyra's children were at least nominally her grandchildren, it was no surprise that she backed the female claimant in this fight. Her dragon Melis was second only to Caraxes amongst the Green's dragons, and her appearance in the sky no doubt heartened the defenders at Rook's Rest, but if the blacks had expected to dismay the attackers, they were mistaken. Sir Criston was prepared for such an attack, and while Rhaenys and her mount rained fire down upon his men, he commanded his archers forward. Arrows and crossbow bolts filled the air, and deadly scorpions such as had been used to bring down another Rhaenys and her dragon a century before in Dorne were deployed, while Sir Criston shouted at his men to aim for the rider. But as men scattered and burned, and Melis roared her fury, the trap that Sir Criston Cole had set closed its fiery teeth. From out of seemingly nowhere, two more dragons rose into the air to join the fight. Sunfire and Vagar had been lying in wait, with Aegon and Aemond One-Eye on their backs. To her infinite credit, Rhaenys, who must have known that she had no chance against both Vagar and Sunfire, did not flee though most agree that against either alone, she might have prevailed. A thousand feet above the battlefield, the three dragons met. 
Melis was able to close her jaws around Sunfire's neck, but then Vagar came from above. The three dragons came together with such force that they tumbled to the ground, shaking the very walls of Rook's Rest half a league away. Flame and smoke shrouded the ground around where they fell for hours, but when it cleared, only one dragon would rise to the air again. Vagar, along with her rider, was unharmed. But Sunfire the Golden had had one wing half torn from his body. His rider, King Aegon, was in much worse shape. With bones broken and burns covering half his body, Aegon would be carried back to King's Landing in agony and would spend months recovering back at the Red Keep, kept alive by Maester's potions and milk of the poppy, and hidden from all eyes save those of his mother and his hand. Melis was dead, ripped to pieces by the surviving dragons, and her rider's corpse was burned beyond recognition. The queen who never was perished amidst fire and blood, and Melis's head would be hauled back to King's Landing as a symbol of the Green's victory. The opposing king had taken a rook of his own at tremendous cost, and the dying of the dragons had well and truly begun. To characterize the dark, turbulent, bloody doings of this period as a dance strikes us as grotesquely inappropriate. No doubt the phrase originated with some singer. The dying of the dragons would be altogether more fitting, but time, tradition, and Grand Maester Munkin have burned the more poetic uses into the pages of history, so we must dance along with the rest. When we study the conflict Munkin named the Dance of the Dragons, we see the truth of the words of Archmaester Rigney, who wrote, History is a wheel, for the nature of man is fundamentally unchanging. What has happened before will perforce happen again. History repeats throughout George R. R. Martin's saga, and we constantly see echoes of the past in other eras of Westerosi history, and none more so in the dance. George R. R. Martin skillfully weaves historical parallels to his main series along with his usual real-world influences in telling this story. And when studying it, we can try to guess what these parallels might be telling us about where A Song of Ice and Fire itself is headed. In addition, the Dance of the Dragons reveals a key component of Targaryen history to us, as suggested by the words of Gildane. The dying of the dragons as a name for the conflict is less poetic, to be sure, but it's one of the most significant outcomes of the war to the future of Westeros and the Targaryen dynasty. Reading A Song of Ice and Fire, one might well question how House Targaryen went from Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters conquering the land from Dragonback with fire and blood to utter ruin less than 300 years later. Well, the story of the deaths of dozens of real and metaphorical dragons during this conflict begins to fill in those gaps for us. There's much more to the story of the decline of House Targaryen, to be sure, but the loss of their dragons surely moved them from the level of near demigods to that of ordinary, if still powerful, rulers, subject to the whims and caprices of fortune, just like all other mere mortals. That loss begins in this dance, and within a couple of decades of its conclusion, the seeds of a generations-long quest by the blood of the dragon to regain that power will be sown. That quest will culminate with the story of Daenerys Targaryen and her dragons, the first to be seen in the Western world since the reign of Aegon III. It all starts here, 
And we've only just begun to see how truly devastating this civil war between a brother and sister will be to their family and the rest of Westeros. In our next installment, we'll address a year of fire and blood for Westeros and the deaths of many more dragons, all while continuing to keep our focus on when and where the echoes of this chaotic period continue to sound the loudest in the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire. Thanks so much for joining us today, and as usual, we'll end this episode by giving thanks and credit where credit is due. Thank you to Mikhail at Ink is Rain on Twitter for lending us her vocal talents for this episode, and also to Zach Louie from Game of Owns Podcast for doing the same. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld. Find him at claradox.de. You can see the wonderful maps of Westeros that he has created there, and to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the History of Westeros music. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our productions, and thank you so much to Ashea and Yoke Boy for their fabulous work on today's production. And as always, thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for including history in his world. And now, it's time to thank our patrons. Castle Steel patrons, Soren, Shari, Direwolf, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Amber, History of Westeros, Hema Helminth the Sellsword Sentinel, Catherine, Tree Girl, Chris, Convenience or Death, David, Kuwaran Halfhand, Amanda, Melinda, Chris, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Anon, Arion, Greg, Brendan Beefish, Steve, Zainab, Yvonne, Felix, Brian, Matt L, Michael M, Tanner, Eden, Dimitri B, Lady Louise of House Taylor, The Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, Spentrails, Sir Daniel, The Sneaky Russian, Oakenfist, The Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed buckeye nuts on a maze field, Mary, Sam, Eric, Leah, Maddie and Jessica, that shiny bastard. Alex, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Ingvild, Christian, Charitable Rereadings, Richard, Camille, Virginie, Rachel, Eric, Hari Krishna, Sir Galahu of what? Matthew, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, PJ, Sin Bobby Joe, Clay, Monaro Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Ezra, Joseph, Kevin, Dennis, Emma, Judson, Emily of the Irie, Jeffrey, Terry, Maria, Ryan, Matthew, Nessie the Questing Beast, and Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs. The History of Westeros patrons, Peers of the Realm, the Mysterious BR, Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, Titles, Titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the Best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. And Lord Brendan Lannister, the Blood Lion, Ruler of Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. The Elite from outside the realm. Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by Flagship Prince Daemon. 
King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. Lady Sarah Connolly, the Willful, wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, Jenny's patron. The White Walkers, Arya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper, only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, First of the First Men, now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Woodbinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword, Pale Frost. The Small Council, Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, Lord Johan of House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, Master of Whisperers. The Lords and Ladies in their Castles, Lady Dyer Liz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains, and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Bread Fort, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass, Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall, Lady Mikhail of Moonacre, Leader of the Weirwood Protectorate Alliance, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest, wielder of the Valyrian steel machete Everglaze, Lord Alastair Whitaker, Lord of the Dawnhold, Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny, Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Wood, dual wielder of Valyrian short swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Twists, sharpshooter of the Weirwood and Ironwood laminated longbow, Todd Von Oben, when you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood, First Forester of the Old Gods, Sworn to House Iron Weirwood, Listen for the Silence, Lady Lyanna Kelly of Wolf Island, Protector of the Steel Hole, Casey Stark of House Acres, Lady Kay of House Archer, Lady of Earthdog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweenie, Lady Rayowin of House Dillstane, the Star Spear, Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, and heir to Blood Raven. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stonesharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel. Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. Lady Mora of House Stark, Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch. Her castle features weirwood doors with painted moons. The King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. And the Queen's High Council, Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whisperers. Rebea Starrise, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Catrin the Wise of House Trondheim, Master of Coin. Grandmaster Elizabeth, middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link. Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, Master of Laws. The Kingsguard, Lord Commander Miriam R, Sir Glennon of House Leanne, called Lion Cloak, longest tenured white sword. Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star, Sir Jord of House Pepsi, the Beverage Knight, Gregor Snow, called Snow Bear, a Bastard of Winterfell, Sir Jen Seaworth, Knight of the Southern Snows, and Lisa, the Water Witch of Dorne, and the Red Wedding Band, Sir Canute of the Rock, wielding to Reormernote, a weirwood lute with Valyrian steel strings. And the Queen's Guard, Lord Captain Commander Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides, from the Seat of Dune, I must not fear, fear is the mind killer. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Weirwood Bow, Rain. Amber the Adamant, Knight of the Mist, and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin. And Nora Nico. 
and the Beard Guard, Lord Commander George the Golden, Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Corgyle, Mad Boy of the Western Desert, and Lord Commander Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss, First Builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, Fire in the Snow. First Ranger, Sir Sorcedelica of House Gramercy. First Steward, Jacob Storm, called Steelspine, the Bastard of Blackhaven. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you all again soon with new episodes of History of Westeros and Radio Westeros. Bye for now. Valar Reredus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 